It is. It is a fantastic job. I, I do absolutely love it, I have to say. Conservation sound. You know, I've been interested in sound for as long as I can remember. Ever since I was a kid, I, I was aware of sound. In fact, I thought I was a bit nutty because I was aware that nobody else talked about sound and I was aware of sound all the time. Episode B. I have layers and layers of sound. So I have different insects, I have birds, I have footsteps, I have um, different sorts of wind. There might be something off to the left that's happening, there might be a bird off to the right. B for blunt, Sarah. And we don't have to be po-faced all the time about this. I mean, the, the behaviour of animals is bizarre and extraordinary in many instances. Of the BBC Natural History Unit. Whereas because I made it, you know, I can bring the natural history knowledge I know and give that to the writer, and then she can then work with that knowledge to develop the scripts. OK, my name is Sarah Blunt, and I'm a senior producer in the BBC Natural History Radio Unit in Bristol. So can you tell us what sort of programmes you make? I make a whole range of programmes, a whole range of styles of programmes. I make features, documentaries, occasionally dramas, and also a sort of mixture of comedy natural history programmes. But because I work in the natural history unit, then the majority of the programmes that I work on are focused on the natural world. Um, They're either directly what we call blue chip, they're very much about the natural world or species that live in the natural world, or it's a kind of tangential approach where we take a theme from the natural world and explore that a programme. Can you tell me about the the level of effort that goes into, say, a, a documentary, let's say, or a feature? The level of effort that goes into a documentary? It's quite a hard answer. I don't know if you, if you mean the kind of brain power or the, the hours and hours that are spent doing it or the, the kind of creation of the idea or the, the hard work that, uh, you know, kind of trumping, if we make something outside, trumping on location. I mean, it varies hugely. It depends. Effort depends very much on the type of programme that you're making. I mean, if you're doing a, making a programme where you've got um, a group of people in a studio talking, then the effort goes into finding the very best experts to bring into the studio to have that conversation. But if you're making something that's out in the field where you want to record on location, um, you might also have interviews that you're recording what we call down the line, where you have someone in a studio in one part of the country and we're recording them from a studio in Bristol. Um, You might be working with writers, um, with actors, reading extracts from books. There might be a presenter um, or a narrator, or you might be um, scripting it yourself. So it very much depends on what what the structure of the programme is, depends on, I suppose, how much effort goes into it. I think you've just set off so many light bulbs over conservationists and science communicators' heads here. There's, oh, <laughs> there's all these different ways you can approach dealing with natural history just through audio. Can you tell me then about the audience, how the audience comes into your decisions about making a programme? The audience is very much at the heart of everything. I make programmes for BBC Radio 4. I mean, as a unit, we're a BBC unit, so we make programmes for the BBC. But as it turns out, all the programmes that come out of Natural History Radio, certainly currently, are all for BBC Radio 4. And that's been the case for many years. So, if you like, I know the audience. So I have a fair idea of geographically where they are, of the, the age of the audience, of what they might be doing at different times of day, the sort of magazines and books that they read. And that's all very helpful when you're making programmes, that you know who you're making the programme for. I mean, making a programme, for me, is a really artistic process. I absolutely love it. But 
I don't make programs for myself. I do make them for the audience. So the audience is, as I say, absolutely at the heart of what I'm doing. The audience is Radio 4, if you want to kind of sum it up in, a, in sort of three words or three or four words, is an intelligent, well-informed, questioning audience. They're an audience that, that want to be challenged with ideas and thoughts and concepts. They're going to question what they hear. They don't just take it at face value. That's interesting. Like For me, as a personal level, a revelation last year was a programme that you produced that went out, I think, at Sunday evenings at a quarter past seven, which... I did not really expect to be as powerful indirectly as a piece of conservation. I know you don't make conservation programs by design, you make programs about natural history, but this one struck me as very powerful as science communication. Gossip from the Garden Pond. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, Gossip from the Garden Pond was a series of three programs. It was written by Lynn Truss and it was a series set in a garden pond in which we heard the characters from the garden pond talking about what life was really like between the lily pads. Uh, (laughs) um, (laughs) So it was a a blend of natural history and comedy. And I think um, the the lovely thing about working in my department is that, uh, you're right, I don't make just conservation programmes. That's not what I'm here to do. I make programmes that draw on the natural world for their inspiration. And we don't have to be po-faced all the time about this. I mean, the the behaviour of animals is bizarre and extraordinary in many instances. So what that series allowed us to do was to invite six actors to play animal characters and for us to present a series which was, without doubt, anthropomorphic. We make no excuse about that. You heard each of the characters individually talking about things that happened in their life and about the other residents in the garden pond. But it was done in a very funny way. Now, what is important in that series is, is that the natural history facts, if you like, that the way those animals live, what they told you about their lifestyles, that was all factually correct. What we did was then push the envelope, as I say, with the anthropomorphism and you know, give those animals voices. But what the audience learned was an enormous amount about how life survives in a garden pond and what what those different animals, whether it was the, the great pond snail or the great diving beetle or the tadpole, you learned aspects about their life that were true, but it was in that context of comedy. And I think that's a really lovely way to work with radio as well. Traditionally, radio departments have been split up. So we have drama departments and we have science departments and we have comedy departments that very much make programmes for particular slots. But what's really nice is when you can actually sort of bring different genres together, I think, and create something very fresh and very different. I mean, I don't know necessarily that a comedy department would come up with a natural history idea (laughs) simply because their background isn't in natural history. You know, they'd have to do all the research and learn all about it first before they could start, if you like, adding the comedy element. Whereas because I made it, you know, I can bring the natural history knowledge I know and give that to the writer. And then she can then work with that knowledge to develop the scripts. So you get a very different partnership going on, which hopefully generates something that's fun for the audience. And it was really interesting, that series. It's the second one that we've done like that. The first series was called Tidal Talk from the Rock Pool, which we made a number of years ago. And that was about characters in a rock pool. 
And both those series were recorded in front of audiences. Um, Gossip from the Garden Pond was recorded in a radio theatre in London and Tidal Talk, the first series, was recorded in a theatre in front of an audience. So there, what you've got from a, if you like, a, a more usual documentary-style programme is you're actually making a programme for an audience that is sitting down and watching those actors. So you're making something that's very visual and then you have to think about how you're going to transform that to radio because any visual jokes are less likely to work well on radio. So you have to be very careful with your script and what you want the actors to do on stage or um, in the case of the radio theatre that might, might get a response from the audience that when that goes on to radio that the radio audience isn't at any sort of loss because of that. And I really enjoy that. I really enjoy that challenge of, of if you like, making two shows for the price of one almost. Um, and obviously from the actor's point of view, it's fantastic to work in front of an audience. I mean, the actors really thrive on that. I have made series where I've taken actors into studios and we don't have an audience, you know, and you, you record comedy in a studio without an audience. And that can work very well as well. But certainly actors do respond to, to having an audience. How interesting. It's brilliant. And very effective because the audience in the theatre, they're guffawing at at learning about nature <laughs> and that's pretty rare i think we, we had a we had a terrific audience i mean the the, the interesting thing about the um doing an audience in a radio theater is in london is that it's um it's in bbc broadcasting house it's a a theater that the audiences know they don't pay to attend the shows so you get a lot of regular um uh, visitors yeah. to that theatre. You know, the audience, I think quite a number of them are the same people that come time and time again. You know, they live in London and yeah. what, you know, how nice are a way to spend spend your afternoon. Yeah, I'm formerly guilty, I have to say. I used to be a total regular for those. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, what, what's interesting about this is that I actually dress the stage. So oh. when we made Gossip from the Garden Pond, instead of just having the actors come on stage and stand behind a microphone, the stage was actually dressed to create the atmosphere of a garden pond. So I had lots of uh, boxes and tables that were all covered in cloths with big flowers on them and weeds and I had loads and loads of old Wellington boots with huge <laughs> flowers coming out of Wellington boots and we had various garden implements scattered all over the over the floor oh, brilliant. and the audience when they were let in when the doors opened and the audience started coming in quite a lot of them you could hear these sort of ooh ah and little mm. comments about the stage because they just weren't used to it but again it was that thing about creating an atmosphere from which everybody would, would benefit. That The stage set was done for the audience, so they really got on board. I also had a guy work with me on lighting, so we had really lovely lighting effects in the theatre as well. And although the radio audience obviously don't get the visuals, but what they get is they are inspired by the atmosphere that's created in the theatre. So the theatre audience and the actors respond to what they see as well as what they hear, and that then feeds into the radio performance. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point that some people have said to me about this, is that nature is so traditionally enjoyed in a visual way. You know, Even 100 years ago, books had to have colour plates in them, and, and now people think of TV and, and things like that. How do you use audio to sort of leap that boundary, leap that barrier for people? For me, sound is key to everything that I do. Um, I, I often compare being a radio producer to being a bit like an artist with a palette of colours. An artist has paints and creates very visual images, whereas I as a radio producer have sounds and create really vivid audio images.
I work very closely um, in nearly all the productions I make with a fantastic wildlife sound recorder called Chris Watson. And we try very hard to really put our ears or put the microphones where our ears may not go and give the audience really strong audio pictures because if you can you know if you can feed the ears then you paint pictures in your mind and I the sort of programs I make are very when I say immersive what I do is a bit like a music composer I work with layers and layers and layers of sound so when we go on location or when we're making a a feature or a documentary then I track lay on a computer instead of just having one track of sound which might just say be a wind track I have layers and layers of sound so I have different I have birds, I have footsteps, I have um, different sorts of wind. There might be something off to the left that's happening, there might be a bird off to the right. So all the time, there's lots and lots going on. Now, a lot of these things are very subtle, but the effect of having layers and layers of them, just in the same way as an artist had layers and layers of paint, means that the experience for the audience is much richer than if they just heard a single voice with no sound behind them. And that, for me, is the real artistry of of the sort of programmes I make. It is that, I mean, it's playing. It's playing with sound. Mm. I compose with sound, if you like. I mean, that all sounds terribly airy-fairy, and I, I don't mean it to. You know, I have a computer, and I can input sounds into it. And for me, working with Chris means that we have someone who's just extraordinary at recording sounds, at getting very close to the, to the sound source, whether that be a bird or a river, putting microphones inside ice, putting them underground, putting them in, under rivers, putting them inside um, sand hills, you know, in all sorts of different places to record very often sounds that you wouldn't normally hear and then using those in, in programmes. So that's the meat of the podcast, the theory and the techniques. After hearing Sarah speak so passionately about what seems to be her dream job, I had to find out how she got there. What was her story? I actually studied agricultural botany at university and I was particularly interested in um, botany and implant disease. And I then went on to do a PhD on something called rhizomania, which actually Mm. is a sugar beet disease. Um, It involves a fungus and a virus. And when I began my PhD in this country, we had the fungus, but we didn't have the virus in this country. So we actually didn't have rhizomania. But amazingly enough, um, the first year of my PhD, we got our first outbreak of virus-infested crop, um, just two fields from where I was working. So suddenly my PhD became um, terribly uh, kind of on the ball (laughs) and very exciting work on it. And so I went on, I did a PhD, and then I started working on a postdoc, um, again working on this fungus and virus. But by that stage, I did my um, PhD at Cambridge and then I went on to do a postdoc that was partly at Cambridge and partly at Oxford, which sounds um, terribly glamorous. But actually (laughs) what it meant was most of the time I was in a car traveling up and down the motorways between Oxford and Cambridge. never really had a home and was a bit of a lost sheep, really. But I ended up working um, in a very specialized fashion, working on trying to purify fungal suspensions out of soil and working with a lot of rather nasty chemicals and really was a long, long way from kind of muddy boot natural history, which <laughs> is what I'd grown up with as a kid and what should, which is really how I'd got to, ended up doing agricultural botany. I mean, I just liked being outside. I, I, wasn't, um, I wasn't a really, really keen ornithologist or a really, really keen uh, wildflower expert, expert. I just was a kind of, you know, jack of all trades, a master of none whatsoever. Um, but just, you know, that was where my passion was for, for being outside and I was always an avid from 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 as long as I can be born I was one of those 
um, generation of the generation that was brought up with Radio 4. It was always on in the house. My parents always listened to Radio 4. And I was an avid listener of the Natural History Programme. And when I was doing my PhD in postdoc, the lab I was working with, we always had it on. And we always um, used to talk about the Natural History Programme afterwards. And one of my colleagues said, you know, you, sh- you should think about doing that. You'd be really good in the Natural History Programme. I never, mm. ever thought about going to radio. Um, but I began, I went through a phase, I began to think about what I wanted to do after this postdoc and where I might end up. And to cut a long story short, I ended up applying to the BBC and was incredibly lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. And I joined them on a two-year training project to be trained as a producer. At the time, they used to take on six people to train them in what was called network radio, which then was radios one, two, three, four. It was before the days of Radio 5. Um, and so I was just one of those really lucky people that came in on two-year training and actually came off that training after a year and a half because a post came up in the natural history unit. And I suppose you could say since then, I've kind of never looked back. So uh, since those days, I've always worked in, the, in natural history radio. Oh, that's such a that's a I mean might not sound exciting to you but that's a really exciting story I think for people who who, who do postdocs and don't know where they want to end up and who know they love wearing wellies and going out in the fields it's brilliant well I, I thought I wanted to do writing I mean I, I um I thought that's where I'd end up going and I thought I'd end up in media or you know working on you know, um, science journals, either Nature or New Scientist or whatever. Uh, mm. But what actually happened was I got I got too qualified, <laughs> and I would I'd send off application forms. I get these letters back saying, "I'm really sorry, you're far too expensive for us to employ." And, oh. uh, and so I sort of had to sort of you know scratch my head and, and sort of look around a bit. Um, but anyway, a lot of things happened at the same time. I was also very interested in teaching, and um, and and actually applied for some teaching jobs, which which it was all rather unfortunate because I got offered the teaching jobs at the same time as the BBC job, and then. Had to make a huge decision Um, but that's a whole other story but the (laughs) the lovely thing about about all that background that I would say is it has been absolutely invaluable to being a a radio producer the the ways in which you know um, working in science and doing a PhD and thinking about experiments about what you what the aim of your experiment is and how you're going to research it and what you're going to do and how you write it up and what your conclusion is 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 Huge has huge parallels with program making, with where you get your ideas from and how you about, go about creating, turning those ideas into programs, you know, the, the structure of your program, the choice of interviews, the choice of, ha- of how you address the subject and, and the conclusions you, you bring out of it, how you write the script, all those, sort of, all those sort of things. The tools of all that have huge parallels from, from kind of my science background. So although I have, you know, absolutely kind of stepped out of that pure science and, and did miss it for a long time when I first came out of it, um, because I was so, you know, I knew about one thing so well. And suddenly, you know, two months later when I joined the BBC, I knew, you know, so little about Rise of Media because it moved on so quickly. Um, mm. But what happens now, it is it is just like being a student, uh, being a radio producer, because every single programme is different. Every single day is completely different. And all the time you're learning, all the time you're meeting different people and learning about their expertise and bringing that into programmes. So um, really, I've just remained a kind of permanent student. Fantastic. <laughs> on on a, a note of then aiding students of natural history or conservation or sound, is there one line of advice that you would give to people, perhaps who work in conservation, who have who use sound in their work that maybe in your experience, conservationists or researchers aren't thinking about with sound, but 
actually might be a really good way for them to a path for them to explore. Well, I, I wouldn't want to tell people things, and I wouldn't I wouldn't want to advise. I think you know that's that's not that's not my role at all as a, as a radio producer. But what what I have become more and more and more aware of. I mean, I've been interested in sound for as long as I can remember. Ever since I was a kid, I, I was aware of sound. In fact, I thought I was a bit nutty because I was aware that nobody else talked about sound, and I was aware of sound all the time. And you know, more and more, it's not just sound I've become aware of, it's noise. It's the unwanted noise pollution that fills our lives. So it's the sounds of computers and fridges and ventilation systems and traffic noise and airplane noise. I mean, you try finding a quiet place to go for a walk in this country. It's impossible. Mm. I mean, there are planes mm. everywhere. And when we go out recording on location, it's so difficult to find a quiet place. And we end up doing retake after retake after retake uh, to try and avoid cars and planes and, and man-made noise. I'm not talking about natural sounds. I'm not talking about birdsong and rivers and wind. I mean, you can't hear those for all the traffic noise. I'm talking about that, that anthropogenic noise, that n- man-made noise pollution. So I guess what I'd like to say, I was to wave a banner, is turn down the noise. And listen, just listen. Sarah Blunt of the BBC Natural History Unit on Conservation Sound. Subscribe and share if you care. Conservationsound.wordpress.com or coffeeflavouredtea.net. Feedback is very welcome.